Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. Uh, in the first service, Scott mentioned that uh, he, he wants these kids to, to understand, and wants you, wants us to know that those kids are having an impact in our missions uh, the way they pray for Honduras and things. And it made me think of our, uh, one of the missions that we're supporting right now in, in India uh, with Kirk and Violetta Nowry who uh, are there right now. In fact, they'll fly in tomorrow and then I'll spend time with them uh, a little bit tomorrow and Tuesday. And they have an orphanage where they have these girls that they literally rescue and... Uh, then train them and teach them and get them educated and then then get them jobs and then even get them to college and and that ministry is happening and and it's just amazing and uh, and Kirk will tell you that it was the prayer of a five-year-old boy that got him to India it was the prayer of a five-year-old boy who ended up passing away not long after and uh, so it's just powerful if you're just joining us in this series, we're preparing for a thousand-day campaign. That's what we're doing. It's called Legacy, and it begins March 25th. Myself, the elders, the staff believe it's time to add children's space to the building to get our younger kids uh, out of the portables that are in the front of the property so that we can lead our children and our future children uh, to personal faith, teach them the values, as you saw there, of the Christian faith. Uh, that's, that's the mission of this church. It's our mission to reach people. It's why we started 23 years ago. Uh, it's why we uh, bought this land in the first place. It's why we built the first time, built the second time, and why we think we need to do it again. Um, you know, we have 12 and a half acres here. It goes all the way back to the tree line, and we want to take full advantage of the space. So um, that's what we're doing. We believe that the... the uh, it's well planned what we want to do. We believe the timing couldn't be any better. Uh, we're intrinsically ready uh, for some of the changes going on, you know, in, in the road and different places and in here. And it's just time to go. So that's what we're doing. We have eight weeks until we bring our first gifts uh, of the campaign, March 25th. So we're getting our hearts prepared. Uh, for that commitment by looking at the book of Joshua. And we said right from the beginning, Joshua is a perfect book and very applicable in numerous ways. I'm, I'm in just in awe of the book. You know, Joshua's leading people on a mission. I mean, we're a people that have a mission. If you follow Christ, you have a mission. And Joshua's leading this people, and he's, God is trying to reinforce to Joshua, I'm with you. I've made all these promises. I'm with you. Read the end of Matthew 28. Wherever you go, I have all the authority. I'm with you. Wherever you go, to the end of the age. And I'm um, leading you to a preferred future, so you need to be about that. And that's what Joshua's about, so it's perfect. Well, in chapter 1, we saw that there is preparation for this new generation uh, to cross over Jordan and into Canaan land, the land that was promised in Genesis 12. 
And in chapter 3, you skip a chapter, and you go to chapter 3, and that's where they actually cross. And it's this beautiful ceremonial crossing, miraculous crossing, the kind of thing that's so miraculous that in chapter 4 and 5, they memorialize it before they go into any battles, before they do anything that they're supposed to do there. Uh, So it's an incredibly special event. And then you get to chapter 6, and the first battle happens, the Battle of Jericho. And that's where we've come to. Uh, but before you get to chapter 6 where the battle happens, there's sort of a precursor to that. And it's squeezed in between, between chapters 1 and 3. And here you have this iconic battle that's about to come up. It's the first battle. But in chapter 2, before the battle ever happens, we're introduced to Jericho, but more importantly to a woman. And perhaps one of the greatest conversion stories of the Old Testament. Uh, she is a surprise. This is a surprise encounter. Literarily, it's presented that way to everyone in the story. It's a surprise. Um, and you, you, would ex- you, you don't expect it. You expect, really, chapter 3 to be chapter 2. Chapter 1, we prepare. Chapter 3, we, we cross over. But chapter 2 is put in there. Almost sort of a, uh, just a precursor to open your eyes to the mission comes even before the crossing they're not even over there yet and the mission what they're going to do over there comes into focus in the shocking story we meet a woman her name is Rahab uh, one of the most colorful characters she's an outsider in every sense of the word there are numerous characters in this story beautiful uh, uh, told story uh, and there's a number of characters, no, numerous characters. Only two are named in chapters two and six. Only two. That's Joshua and Rahab. And they're put side by side because one is the consummate insider. That's Joshua. He's the male, he follows Yahweh, and he's an Israelite. And then you have next to him is the consummate outsider. Rahab. She's the female, she's a Canaanite, and she's a prostitute. Not only that, the text tells us that she lives on the outside of the wall, the outside of the city. Even where she is is the fringe. She's marginalized, not only because of who she is, but because of where she lives. She's on the outer wall. Can't get any marginal than that in a massive city. So in the most known battle of the Old Testament, which is the battle of Jericho, she is the main character. It's unexpected and it's unlikely. She is responsible for saving the spies, and then as a result of it, she gets saved. It's a rescue mission, and she's at the center of both. And so, Jericho is that story everyone knows. They march over there into this city, and the city has high walls, and God tells them, march around it every day for six days, six times. And on the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times. And when you get to the seventh time, after you march around it, just blow the trumpets and start screaming. Uh, That's what we're going to do. And it's just... And, and it's this elaborate thing, and you think this is the most important thing, but there's an interplay between, in chapter six, when, the, when this is all actually going down, 
between her and interjected through it all is Rahab. And then in the conclusion is Rahab. And there's almost as, as many Hebrew words given to Rahab or to the fall of Jericho as there are to Rahab's rescue. In fact, she concludes the whole thing in chapter 6. Her two monologues in chapter 2 are what are, are the whole story. And so, uh, you know, the... the Here is how this massive battle, the first one, the iconic one, the most important one, most strategic battle that happened. The people shouted, trumpets were blown, uh, and this is all you get. With two chapters, getting ready to go, the walls came down. That's it. We're not talking about it anymore. That's the whole thing. But not Rahab. She is the dominant focus. The plan to rescue her is literally more elaborate than the plan to bring down this uh, very, very powerful city. So what we learn right from the beginning, it's not about the walls coming down. It's not about the walls falling. It's about her heart opening up to God. And there is a great literary picture in the book, in the two chapters, and I want you to see it. This is how chapter 6 describes the city uh, as they're about to pounce on it, as or, or march around it anyway. It says, now Jericho was shut up, inside and outside, because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And this is, you could see they're fortifying themselves for this battle. They know Israel has, is, you know, is gonna, has crossed over and is going to come to battle with them. They have just locked it down, basically. And this is a literary picture that's going throughout the book. You'll see a few more phrases. And it just tells you about the city. They're closed off to God. They don't want him in. They don't want him out. They, they don't want him in any part of their world. They're just closed off to him from the outside to the inside. That's the city. However, there's a woman in there. And in chapter 2, you see this. The gates are shut. All the gates that we'll see inside and out. But here's this woman. She lets the spies that come to her house out through a window. Because her house was built into the city wall. She lived in the wall. Behold, when when they come into the land, you're going to tie this scarlet cord into the window. You'll gather your whole house and family here, and we'll know which window's yours by the scarlet cord hanging out of it. She said, according to your work, so be it. She sent them away, and they departed, and she tied that yellow cord in the window. So here is your window. So here's... The whole literary picture of the book is, despite this closed-off city, the gates that are tall, walls that are fortified, nobody's getting in or out, there's a window open. There's a window open. There's a window of opportunity. And Israel's about to see their mission come to life in that that woman. So Rahab... uh, Rahab... We learn this as we live our lives and we go out into the world and do our business. We have a mission. We have a mission. It's to help as many people see Christ as we possibly can. It's a closed off world. In many ways, they're closed off out externally and internally. In many ways, 
And yet our mission is a priority. And what we're supposed to do, what God expects us to do, is just look for the open windows. Just look for the open windows of opportunity. That's what we do as we go out and about. And Rahab helps both groups. She helps us as insiders know what to do when we're out on the mission. And she helps any of us who might be outsiders not yet come to faith in Christ. What does it look like to come to faith? She does both. So she's going to help us both. She's quite a lady, and we're going to see. In chapter 2, let's get into the story. We've got a lot to cover, and we've got to have to move pretty fast. So here's chapter 2. Here's how it all begins. They haven't even crossed over yet, and this story gets inserted. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shatim. I've had more anxiety about that word than the entire campaign. And that's about put me under. But this word, stressed. So I went through uh, the Hebrew. See how this is. Just imagine that's an E, if you would please. Because it's pronounced that way. Shatim. All right? So these spies got over that one. Spies. Go view the land, especially Jericho. Jer- Jericho's strategic. When they cross over, they're right in Jericho's backyard. But they got to they figure this battle out. This city is the biggest. The city is the baddest. So they're going to do that. He sends out the spies. And then here's what happens. They went and they came in the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, uh, if you're reading the story, you're like, come on, guys. Is that the only place you can find? Seriously. <laughs> Now, if you're, if you're a reader of the book and you don't know the whole story, or if you're like Joshua back and you get news, where'd you guys go? You're know, like, if we sent the staff out to San Antonio, Michigan, where'd you go? Uh, come on. Uh, it's that kind of thing. And immediately you're like, uh-oh, where's this story going? And that's the literary pressure in the book. And right off the bat, he wants you to know, because we're sort of pictured in the spies, so you got to picture yourself as the spy here. You're on a mission. And you end up in this place. You, it, it was probably the wisest place to go. First of all, it's on the outer wall. I mean, it's, you don't have to go in too far to get in. Plus, it's probably a little hustling place. It's probably, you know, it was a brothel. Probably a place where you might just sort of blend into a bunch of other people and maybe nobody's even thinking about who's there and everybody else is trying to hide out a little bit too. So you're hiding out. So at some level it is, but it's eyebrow raising. And it's on purpose because immediately you need to know that whatever it is we're on mission to do sometimes gets a little messy. It gets messy. Okay, and you, and you got to make good judgments and you got to think of things and you end up in messes. We'll see how that goes here in a minute. I, I don't have time to tell you a bunch of stories. I got lots of stories on the mess of entering, the, of entering the world and, and trying to share the gospel. You can imagine what they are. So it's messy and scary right off the bat. What we learn about these two spies uh, right here is uh, the spies went. They came to the house of the prostitute. And uh, immediately, it's like verse 3, immediately the king already knows they're there. Behold, there's men of Israel that's come tonight to search out the land. He knows exactly where they are. And you're like, we've got the two most inept spies I've ever seen in my life. First, they show out at a pro- prostitute place, and you're supposed to go, you know, you send two instead of 12. Because you, you don't want a committee anymore. They screwed that first one up. 
You want two guys to go over there, figure out what we got to do, and get back here. Hide the two of you. Wear camo. And they're found out immediately. So, you know, you immediately think of spies like us. These are, this is who I picture there. Don't you picture this? These two end up saving the world, okay? And if you haven't seen this, it's important for your spiritual life. If you haven't seen this, these two monkeys save the world almost accidentally. And that's what happens to these two spies. And it's a great sort of comedic picture of, of sort of us bumbling around in the world, carrying faith, doing the best we can to get it out to others. These spies. All right. Now, uh, fortunately in this story, there's a sharp gal and you don't expect it. And it's, it's definitely her. Uh, so the king of Jericho comes to Rahab. Hey, we know these spies are here. Bring out the men. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, true, the men came to me. Now, if you're the king's men, you don't really understand everything Israel's doing. You figure, well, this is probably the spot a couple of spies would first want to hang out. You don't have any idea. And so there's lots of sexual innuendos in here. That's sort of a literary play that keeps a lot of spice in the story, making you think one thing when really nothing like that actually happened, which is true in a lot of cases when we're out in the world doing what we're doing, you could be misinterpreted a lot by other Christians. Anyway, she says, I don't, I don't know where they're from. I, I didn't know where they're from. And, uh, and then hear it again. The gate was about to be closed at dark. So the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly before they overtake. She got this gate closing. It's another just literary picture of this is the city. The king's men are here to protect the city. We want God out. And here's this woman on the inside, an outsider on the inside, that God is using. She's the most competent person in the story. She's protecting the spies and she's handling the king's men. We don't know any of their names. We don't know the name of the king in this story. We don't know the name of the king's men. We don't know the name of the spies. We only see her. She's the most competent person in the story. The king's men are out running around looking for nothing. The two bumbling spies are up on the roof under flax. A bunch of, uh, you can see them, just sort of hiding out under there like two monkeys. We screwed this up really bad. We're in trouble. Our, ha- our fate is in the hands of this prostitute. It's like, oh, we're dead when they find out. You just can feel it. And you know, there's a great sort of play on words in there because in Hebrew, there's a, there's a line where he says, uh, we came to dig up information. And they end up buried under flax. It's very comical. But the gates are closed. So the city is presented as a hard nut to crack. Ooh, uh, this city's not open to us. On the other hand, she puts these men literally on her roof. She brought them up to the roof and hid them with these stalks of flax. Uh, that had been laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan. So you got these guys under the, under the flax and you got these guys running for nothing. She's quite the lady. She turns out to be a very smooth operator. Uh, handling all this. And, and I just want to say a couple things about uh, this 
Great scene. Uh, you never know. You never know uh, when, where, or who, or how God will open up somebody's eyes to the gospel. It'd be a closed place. You could say, where I work, everybody's closed off. Where I go to school, everybody's closed off. Nobody wants to hear me, blah, 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 all the way down the line. God knows how to get into the most closed off places. He knows how to find people. And he's at work beyond you. That's the thing. There's no life so impervious that God's grace can't break into it. We have to live with that edge. Yes, we know the world's closed off, but there's always a window open. Otherwise, how would we be here? There's a window open, and you've got to find that window And so the spies learn that the goal is not to survive. Here they are underneath there. And by the time they leave, they're going to realize that it wasn't their survival that was the most important thing. It was reaching Rahab, getting to Rahab at all costs. It's a powerful thing. You never know how this is going to work out. And it's so funny that she is the one, uh, she is the one leading this thing. Uh, I'll come back to it. Let's go to this. Um, so you get to chapter 2 and verse 9. And, the, and, and everything literarily is building to verse 9. Uh, you could tell that the writer, uh, commentaries notice that f- just from a grammatical standpoint and literary style, the, the writer can't wait to get to 9 to 11 to hear you for the first time see what Rahab's thinking. Because up to now, literarily, you don't know what she's really up to. You don't know what she wants. You don't know who she's going to play against who. But then you get to verse 9, and it all becomes very clear. She says, I know. I know that the Lord has given you guys the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. Our whole city is scared to death. That's a theme throughout chapter 2 and 6. All the inhabitants of the land... uh, a melt away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, what he did to the two kings, the Amorites, beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, how he overcame them. And as soon as we heard, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Listen to her. She's the first person to bring Yahweh into the story. It comes off of her lips. It's not the spies. It's hers. Just profound. And she is pointing out God's sovereignty and his work in those people, and she's seen it. So she at once acknowledges God, acknowledges his plan and his sovereignty. She practically assures the spies, you guys are going to win because we're already devastated. We've already lost. We have no confidence here. And then she brings Yahweh into the narrative. And and your your, your question at this point, and commentators just are forced to say, how does she know all that? How does this prostitute on the end of the wall fringe know all this? The details. Well, you realize. You never get that answer. It's as if the writer wants you to realize that when God is reaching somebody, he knows how to get them information and you're not in charge. He knows how to get them the information. You're always worried about the guy. I don't know if he's ever going to hear it. God will get it to him. 
He knows how to get them details you could never be in charge of. He knows how to open hearts and prepare them for truth. That's what he's doing. And the reader is literally shocked by it because what's happening is God is already on the inside. You can shut the gates. There's an open window, and if there's an open window, God is there, and he's preparing the heart. We don't know how he does it. We just know that he does it. And by the time you're finished, you're shocked. You're shocked either by the fact that Rahab's interested in God or maybe more that God is interested in Rahab. Which one's more shocking? And the whole point is no one is outside of Hillside's reach or uh, outside of God's reach. So you, you, the whole point is you march despite the size of the walls and you let God do his inside work on people. He's in charge of that part. You don't melt hearts. You and I don't melt hearts. We just show up around walls screaming and blowing trumpets. Looking like fools sometimes. Vulnerable. In messy circumstances. How did I get here? What am I doing? And God has you there because he's got an open window. It's, it's because he cares about that lady. So by the time you get to verse, so so you learn the first thing, if you're an outsider, how do I need to be thinking if I'm an outsider and want to be an insider, want to have a relationship with God? I don't want to be on the judgment end, I want to be on the salvation end. What do you do? Well, the first thing you got to have knowledge, you got to have rational, you got to think. And I will tell you this, no one in the Bible and Christianity and God is not asking you to put your brains at the door and just take a leap of faith. Christianity demands that you think about reality. You think about the hardest things. You don't get to take a day off. You don't get to just say, I'm just going with this because I don't want to think that hard. You don't get to do that. If you're going to come to Christ, you better think straight. Who runs the place? And then you get to the second piece in chapter and verses 12 and 14 here. She says this, now then, please swear to me by the Lord. Swear to me by the Lord as I have dealt kindly with you that you will also deal kindly with me. Very important Old Testament Hebrew word, compassion. It's, it's about God's just overwhelming, as we sang earlier, reckless love. Reckless love. He'll kick down, he'll, he'll overturn any lie. He'll kick down any wall, climb any mountain. He will find you. And that's what he's done. And she's saying, she's admitting, I need grace. I'm desperate for grace. I need compassion. I know I have not much to offer. I got nothing. And in fact, my whole family's doomed, me and all of us. We're doomed unless God steps in here and does something powerful. That's the second thing that happens to the outsider when they realize it. At some point, you're just desperate. Come to God, you realize who he is. You realize his sovereignty, as we sang about in The Lion and the Lamb. You realize you got a sovereign God who runs the universe, but he also sacrificed himself for you, and then you get desperate, and you realize, well, I guess there's nothing I can do. I need grace. And that's where she's at. And then you get to verse... uh, And the men say, our life for yours. If you don't tell about our business, then the Lord will give us the land and we'll deal kindly and faithfully faithfully with you. And that's what 
That's essentially what happens. She commits. She puts everything at risk here. I want to read this to you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window after the king's men had gone. For her house was built in the city wall, so she lived in the wall. And she said to them, just go into the hills and hide there for three days. And afterward, uh, they'll give up on the search and you can go home. Uh, And we'll make sure we keep our oath. And the next verses say this. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and your mother, your brothers, all of your family. Uh, They got to stay in the house. That's what verse 19 is about. Everybody's got to be here. When we get here, everyone that's in your clan needs to be in this room. And if you tell this business of ours, then we'll be guilty. Here's the sort of elaborate plan she's got to follow, and she's got to stick to it. And uh, she basically has to put the scarlet cord in her window. So when they come back, they'll know which window to go to, which is very risky. You see the third step of the outsider coming in. Not only are they rational and they know and they thought about things, but then they understand that they're desperate, but then there's the third piece, and that is you take the risk. And you put that red cord outside the window and you could be identified, you could be in trouble. You could, be, you could actually get caught committing treason here. She's putting everything on the line for this. So she's kind of desperate and it says, and they departed, she put the scarlet cord. So you gotta put the scarlet cord out the window, you gotta make sure everybody's in your house and you gotta make sure that you don't tell anybody. And now she waits. And it reminds me, because she's about to turn her back on history, her heritage, culture, lifestyle, the pagan gods. She's grown up knowing everything. And in Luke chapter 14, there's a beautiful picture where Jesus is describing people who are considering following him. And he says, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like, just imagine you're a king. And imagine you're about to go to battle, and you've got to battle a stronger king, a king who's got five times your army. You can't win. You know you can't win. You don't go to battle. You send a little group of guys, your best peace negotiators, out to that king, and you negotiate terms of surrender. You negotiate terms of surrender. And that's essentially what she's doing. I can't win. We're not going to win this. Now, the rest of the city has said, we're not going to win this. We're scared to death. We're still closed off to God. But here's the open window. Here's the open window that says, when I look at, when I rationally look at the two options, I'm on my knees. I am surrendering. That's your options. That's your best choice. Now, there's a commentator who puts it this way because this is a beautiful image if you think about it this way. He pointed this out and and I loved it. He says, the, two, the agents of two conflicting kingdoms knocked on her door that fateful night. That of Yahweh and that God and that of Canaan's religious political system. And that's what happened. One night, here I am, hanging out in the wall, and I get a knock on the door from two sides of reality. That's how it comes. And this is what it means when you come to Christ. When you come to Christ, you're faced with a radical choice. This one or this one. And I love it. And he says, the same radical choice faces everyone, wherever, whenever, and however the kingdom of God comes knocking at your door. 
And he says, only those who risk their lives, throw away their past, their selfish dreams, their previous identities, these are the people who find inclusion and find rest in the kingdom. Canaan represented rest. Here was God saying to a woman, desperate, working hard. You need rest. And she knew it. There was an open window. There was a secret place in her life that was just coming out. And she finds rest by belonging into God's kingdom. It's just a beautiful picture. And uh, in fact, the book ends in chapter 6, verse 25. Or there's a few more verses after this where Joshua says something about Jericho, but you could read that. He says, uh, but Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And I'll tell you, in the New Testament, you know that she, there's only two ladies mentioned more than Rahab in the New Testament. That's Mary, Jesus' mother, and Sarah, Abraham's wife. She becomes the person that the New Testament points to and says, that's what I'm talking about. That's her. In Hebrews 11:31, her faith. Look what she did. She risked everything on the line. It wasn't just rational. She said, I know who God is. Lots of people know who God is. But not, that doesn't lead them to desperation and then a hardcore risk and commitment and surrender. That's where you got to get to. And James 2.25 says the faith and the works kind of come together there. All of a sudden I believe and because I believe I'm surrendering everything to God. She becomes the epitome. And not only that, in Matthew 1 when we're talking about the line of Jesus, only five women are mentioned. Four of them are foreigners. Through the Davidic line that gets to Christ, Rahab is a key part of that genealogy. This is God saying, she is now in my family. This is, is, this is, she has lived in Israel to this day. You know what she did? She just became an Israelite. Her whole identity changed. It changed so radically that Christ himself came from her line. That's the change. So what you see is, The end of the story is not that the walls came down. It's that there was a window open in her life and God found it and met it and changed it. That's the mission. Yes, there's lots of business we got to take care of while we're here, Hillside. You're a human on planet Earth. But you go nowhere that you're not on a mission. And your eyes need to be open for for opportunities, open windows in a world that is more and more getting shut down inside and out to the gospel. We have a, uh, a gal came to Christ at our church here recently. And uh, she has a great little story and uh, we captured it on video. I want you to watch this just real quick. Hi, I'm Madison Johnson. I grew up in Keller. Um, I'm a Keller graduate. I went to Keller High School, um, and then I graduated. So I'm, I'm from around here, and I never really went to church anywhere in Keller. I mean, I went 
I guess I had a couple friends in middle school and high school that would take me every once in a while. Um, but it was always a weird feeling for me. I never, I always felt like an alien. Like I didn't, I wasn't in the right place. Before I believed, I, yeah, I was not comfortable. And then um, Alex was just a huge part of um, getting me here and getting me um, to believe. And just coming to Hillside was like a whole experience in, it, in its own. Alex and I started dating. August, August of 2016. 2016. Yeah. So we started dating, and on our first date, he asked me, have you ever been to church? I think it was like two weeks later, or like was, even maybe the following weekend. You were like, hey, I think you want to come to church with me? I go to Hillside. Um, Zach Wilhouse is going to be there. Some other people that you know are going to be there. And I was like, okay, I'll come, I'll come check it out. What really caught me was the worship and then Pete's, Pete's sermons. So worshiping was like my favorite part. Like I look forward to it every single time. I think a little while, I don't even, I don't even know if you would plan this out, but a little while after that, you were like, hey, we can sing some of these songs at home. Like you don't just have to sing them at church. So he bought me a ukulele for Christmas. It was for Christmas, so a few months later. Yeah, we were playing some like other songs, secular music, but then then the worship music started creeping. He was like, what about this song? You really like this song because you would hear me singing it all the time or it would be stuck in my head. And I love music. Just learning some of these songs and uh, what they're about and then relating them back to what I was learning in sermons and through Bible studies was just awesome. One of Pete's sermons was like, you, you got to have somebody else. You got to have someone teaching you. And so um, I reached out to Lydia Russell and I was like, hey, can you do a Bible study with me? We started Seamless, which was an awesome study because it just gave us this awesome overview of all the aspects of the Bible. We, we got engaged uh, in June of this past year. And it was one of those things for me where um, I, I was... You know, I knew in my heart that um, being on different footing was was going to be a challenge uh, because you know I I had been a believer for a number of years and this was all new to her. Uh, you know, her doing some self discovery, meeting with other people, um, you know, myself helping as well. But you know, I did, I really tried to stay out of the way a little bit because you know I didn't want to be that person that was kind of forcing. We uh, met with Cody. Uh, who he started talking to us about the whole concept of uh, being unequally yoked and you know what that means and uh, that was something I'd always thought about but he he shed a lot of light on that uh, from various scriptures and, and different things that really helped me even who had been a believer for some time and also her understand the whole concept of that and I think that was really when when things shifted for you a lot you started I mean, thinking it just more. made me think about everything because it was like right and it was we were asking cody to marry us and we were asking hillside to marry us and yeah. they said no and so i was i was i was mad i was bitter i was like what is going on like i mean i just had to wrap my head around all this and it was like well why are they saying no and it wasn't because it was like, oh, we don't like you. Like, we can't marry you. No, it wasn't. It was because we were unequally yoked. And it was at that point that I was like, well, I'm not unequally yoked. Like, that, that's not me. Because I believed all the things that I was studying. I believed in all the people that, were, that I was meeting with and the things that they were saying. I just hadn't said it out loud yet. And part of 
believing in Christ is just confessing with your mouth. And once you say it out loud, um, it just makes it all that much more real. So we just got married in December, uh, and it's actually been one month, and we've been doing a few things. We started serving actually uh, a couple months ago in the youth on Wednesday nights. I also started um, in the nursery. Uh, I heard an all call. I just, when people ask for help, I just want to go help. If somebody asks me to do something, I'm like, okay, I can do that. We're also in a life group. We're in a life group with Cody and Heather mm-hmm. Bland and some other cool people. They're just going to build us up so much. I'm really excited to just see how our our relationship with God grows with them and through them. It's a great story. It's messy. There's delicate matters. She gave her life to Christ. And then he moved out of the house before they got married. Uh out of just, this is not right, and we need to do that, and they did it. And uh, then they got married, and now they're serving at the church. You can see just all the dynamics, uh, and you just love the way God works. God, we're not in charge of melting hearts. God does that. God's in charge of that. So when I think of the campaign that we're doing, you know, as important as the Battle of Jericho was, It wasn't the walls coming down that was the most important thing. It was that open window. It was the mission that mattered the most. Uh, I think of our campaign and I think um, it's not just about the walls going up. It's not about the building. I need to make sure everyone in here knows that it's about people, kids, families. It's about the mission. It's the people that are going to be reached. That's what matters the most. It's a little scary. The whole thing scares me. But it's got to be done. And, and I don't think it's out of the question to, to imagine that we would have to steward our resources to make that happen. Uh, I just don't think that's... I know it's not out of the question for me when God looks at me and, and asks me what I'm doing. Uh, I don't think it's out of the question for us to do that. Uh, or even to make sacrifices for it. I, I think that's worth it. I think that's worth it. The open windows are worth it. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, there's a great text in Hebrews. Hebrews 3 and 4. I mentioned it earlier when we got to Joshua. And it tells the story of the people that didn't make it into the promised land. And here's this woman who you'd never expect to enter the promised land who enters it. She enters it. She finds rest. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when God promised, Abraham, through you, I'll make you, I'll give you that land, and I'm going to make you a blessing to every nation, every kind of person. I don't care who they are. And she's the picture of that. She enters that rest. And in Hebrews 3 and 4, the writer of Hebrews, you don't have anyone pleading like the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament. And what he is saying every day is today. What he says multiple times, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't shut down like the city. Don't shut the gates inside and out and keep God out, he says. If you hear his voice today, you can enter that rest. That's the message of Hebrews 3 and 4. You can enter that rest if you don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You can give your life to Christ today and enter that very same rest, no matter who you are, no matter what your past is, no matter where you've been, no matter if you're fringe, it doesn't matter. 
If God's been seeking you, you know it. And all you got to do is surrender your life to him. Why don't you bow your heads? Father, I pray for anyone in this room that might be in that category. The window's a little open. And it's because you have done something that has captured their heart. They see secrets and they're open to them. And I pray for us. I pray for them, God. Today they'll open that window fully to you. Melt their hearts. And then I pray for those of us who are already insiders, Father, and longing to encounter those open windows. Keep our eyes open, Lord, that even though there are powerful obstacles in the world, that we will seek people whom you infinitely love and have sacrificed everything for. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.